Welcome to the drama of diagnosis, your portal to conversations about illness. The knowledge you gain here can inspire deeper levels of compassion and understanding. But it's the capriciousness of illness that suggests a little education can't hurt, in case something strikes you someday. Welcome to the Drama of Diagnosis. I'm June Scharf, and the occasion for this episode is Peter Frampton coming forward with his diagnosis of inclusion body myositis, which is a very rare illness. It essentially is a weakening of certain muscles, which has debilitating consequences. To discuss IBM in much greater detail is my guest, Dr. Lisa Christopher Stein, and she's the director of the Johns Hopkins Myositis Center. She's one of the leading experts in the country on this illness. What you'll find is that she's able to reveal a lot about what we know about this illness, but also there's a lot we don't know, and she explains some of the sources of that mystery. For the moment, to bring Peter Frampton into sharper focus, I can say that he's a British singer, songwriter, guitarist, a band called Humble Pie. He later went on to become a Grammy Award winner as a solo artist. He's 69 years old, and about eight or nine years ago, he started experiencing weakness in his legs, and he just thought he was getting older. It was only about three years ago that he got the IBM diagnosis. To put Peter on the musical historical map, we could say, I just want to mention that his first album came out in 1976, and it was called Frampton Comes Alive. It sold more than 17 million copies, and it remains one of the best-selling live albums of all times. It also spent 10 weeks at number one on the charts. I think we could also call it noteworthy that he was schoolmates with David Bowie, and he once went on tour with David, serving as David's lead guitarist. He's been very vocal about saying that he does not want to stop playing since it is his passion and it's something he discovered when he was eight years old. More recently, he's been in the studio recording several new albums at a very fast and furious pace because his time is running out in terms of his ability to play well. From what he shared in some TV interviews, he seems to be a very honest and down-to-earth person and it it actually feels like his ego has kind of taken a holiday and he's so appreciative of his fans and his band and the touring that he's involved with right now. He admits that he's a perfectionist, so he wants to go out while he can still play his music at his own self-imposed high standards. The last thing I'll say about Peter is that his attitude toward everything seems to be something from which we can all take a lesson when it comes to adversity. He says that when things have gone wrong with his family or himself, he gets himself back up, brushes himself off, and changes direction. When he told his kids about his illness, they weren't so cavalier, though. In fact, they were devastated, understandably. But what I love is what his response to them was, and that was... It's not life-threatening, it's life-changing. And I think that's a beautiful statement. So please allow yourself to get wrapped up in my conversation with Dr. Lisa Christopher Stein. Disease. There are fewer than 200,000 cases diagnosed per year, correct? Correct. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's incredibly um, uncommon. And if we were to capture it in one sentence, how would you do that? Well, I think it's a mysterious illness that affects 
the skeletal muscles that uh, is debated as to whether it is a primary neurodegenerative or accelerated aging disease or an immunologic one or both. Okay, and, and the primary symptoms are a weakening or an atrophying of certain muscles, which essentially is set in motion by inflammation. Is that right? And then there's muscle degeneration as a result of that. Yeah, I think that's a chicken and egg question. So we do know there's inflammation, a lot of it, mm-hmm. and there is muscle atrophy, so it certainly is a degenerative process. I think what is unclear as to which comes first necessarily or if one really potentiates the other. Right. Okay, I did. I, I am aware of that. My research team has raised certain points. Chicken or egg was the way it was cast. So let me just <laughs> break that down. It's either the body's immune system that turns against muscles and damages them, which creates the progressive degeneration, or this is the, the chicken or egg, or it's possibly like a protein that accumulates and then later the immune reaction kicks in. Is that basically what you're describing? That's a fair assessment, yes. Okay, yeah. So there's a lot, of, so in addition to being rare, and maybe because it is rare, there are a lot of things we don't know. Correct. Okay. Now, what about how it could be mistaken for ALS, which is a, a mouthful of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease? Sure. I, I think there's, you know, there are similarities even at the basic science level for those two diseases, but they can look a lot alike initially, and it's frightening for patients. Sometimes, really, even the doctor as well, where we're not quite sure in the very beginning, and it takes a careful, close look with particular testing as well as physical exam, but the symptoms can be somewhat similar. You can certainly see some weakness, and the swallowing dysfunction that occurs is uh, sometimes early in both diseases, and so there are some parallels in them. Yeah, okay, well, we're going to get into symptoms in a minute, but as far as who is affected, it appears that it's primarily men, and that's at a rate of twice as many men as compared to women, correct? That's right. So you see, okay, and then it's typically after age 50, but some patients can be as young as their 30s. Is that pretty much what you see? I do. You've done your research well. That's correct. (laughs) Okay. Well, I I just want to put all this out there so people can, you know, better understand this illness because it is uncommon. Um, However, I will tell you, I do have a friend who has it. Um, He was recently diagnosed. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's told me that even some doctors haven't heard of it, which I was sort of surprised. Or maybe they just haven't seen it. Yeah, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, that was certainly my experience in my earlier training before I became a rheumatologist and then became uh, more acquainted with all of the myositis subsets, inclusion Mm -hmm. body myositis being one of them. But it's a rare disease, and I think there's much more awareness now. Mm -hmm. But it takes several years before I think awareness hits the mainstream. So I wouldn't be surprised with a rare disease. Uh, with some physicians really not having a lot of familiarity with it. Yeah. Okay. Let's consider the symptoms. How would you characterize those? Sure. The symptoms are usually uh, painless weakness. Not Some people may report pain, but that's not the main symptom. Okay. The vast majority of uh, patients actually first report falling. Mm-hmm. So usually it often precedes, uh, it can precede the 
onset of the diagnosis, onset of the disease uh, proper or the diagnosis itself by years, where patients insidiously trip. Um, it's often at a change of terrain, for example, from like carpet to um, a hardwood floor or a curb, something that requires navigation uh, where the um, foot, you know, flexor, or, um, sorry, extensor would have to come over the curb. Mm-hmm. So the body thinks it's navigating the limbs properly, but they're, they're, I'm sorry, the mind believes that the body doesn't, doesn't catch up. So falling is one of the main uh, symptoms in the beginning. The other symptoms that are prominent are proximal muscle weakness. So we see weakness in the hips and, and shoulders, but this is even a bit more unique in that it targets very specific muscles. So you may have read in your research that quadriceps in particular are are targeted. So patients have a difficult time, for example, extending their their knee uh, or some patients have a difficult time in the upper extremities as well, the upper upper limbs. But the main symptoms often hit the quadriceps first. And then, importantly, unlike other diseases that affect the muscle, this uniquely affects the finger flexor muscles, and that is a, a very it's a unique feature that doesn't really seem to cross most other muscle diseases like it does in IBM. Mm-hmm. You can see a bit of loss of the muscle, and sometimes that's fairly early, but certainly with time, muscle atrophy is also a very prominent feature. And then finally, swallowing dysfunction, which the medical term is dysphagia, but that's a difficulty with navigating foods, either solids or liquids, noticing maybe choking on the food a bit or, you know, have a having a bit of time swallowing liquids, or more importantly, usually patients describe uh, bread or meat, something more difficult to swallow, getting stuck and requiring an extra couple of swallows, and again, they don't recognize why that is. Yeah, and what percentage of patients experience that, would you say? You know, I think the literature would probably say at least 50%, and I think that number's a bit difficult to define because it depends on how symptomatic. So I think if you press people, at least half have had some swallowing problems, Mm. but the number that actually affects people uh, on a daily basis is smaller than that. Okay, and what about eye muscles when it comes to closure? Is that affected? Yeah, so facial muscles can also be affected. Again, I wouldn't say that in my experience, looking at it with the rheumatology lens, now I'll I'll also tell you that uh, neurologists see this disease often and maybe even perhaps more than than rheumatologists. There's a fair split among who the patient would see. But neurologists who are particularly trained to look carefully at those facial muscles were really probably the first to bring it to my attention that they were affected. It really wasn't the patient. So I would say that while it does seem to affect the facial muscles, certainly early in disease, I can't recall an episode where a patient brought that to my attention. It was generally the other way around where I found it on examination and and we noticed that they were weak. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now another factor is um, the older a person is at the age of onset, the, the faster it progresses in terms of the loss of strength and mobility. So the question is, what's considered old? <laughs> yeah, and again, that's not a hard and fast rule. I've had young people progress very quickly as well, so it's not okay. as if it's 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does seem a 
to some extent, the older you are, the worse you do if you're diagnosed a bit older. And I think, again, those numbers are questionable. I mean, older in the IBM set, you know, 50 is, is the general cutoff. You've mentioned 30 is possible, age 30. But because most people present over the age of 50, in IBM, an older patient would be in their 70s, for example. Okay. And as you said, the rate of progression varies quite a bit. What, what might be the inner and outer ranges where you really are impacted? Uh, for, I'm sorry, did that record age or? No, just in terms of it can take 10 years till you're really uh, compromised or maybe it takes five years. Sorry, inner, outer range yeah. of, of that. But I, I don't know that I can speak to that with any precision. And I actually think that speaks to the fact that we don't have very precise estimates and understand who progresses and who doesn't. If I look at all comers for this disease, I have had, for, I can certainly give you examples mm-hmm. of patients who have progressed to a wheelchair in two years, which is highly unusual but not impossible. Mm-hmm. And then I have patients who are not in a wheelchair for nearly two decades. They're using assistive devices for sure mm-hmm. between 12 and 20 years most of the time, but some of them are not in a wheelchair. I just saw a patient who arguably has probably had the diagnosis for close to 30 years, which is the most I've ever seen in my own clinical practice. And this patient is, um, while in a mobility chair, is still living their life. So I think the outer range, you know, in general, the progression is not usually as low as two years, but can be. And it's maybe to the point where people become pretty uh, symptomatic, perhaps around eight years or so. Okay, and you sort of graced this topic just now, but it it doesn't directly reduce a person's lifespan, although it can be an indirect, we could say, causal factor if, say, you get pneumonia because, you know, your respiratory system is affected and or because of difficulty swallowing. Exactly that. So we don't know of it, the disease itself, causing, you know, being uh, associated with mortality aside from the comorbid causes, exactly what you've just talked about, the consequences of having the disease, exactly. Okay. Now, the diagnosis is achieved with a biopsy, which you take from muscle tissue, but what will that reveal when you have the sample? Sure. So the muscle biopsy is, is a curious part of this disease. The hallmark in the thing that we look for that helps solidify the diagnosis in the right clinical setting is where the disease gets its name. It's something called inclusions, or uh, there are vacuoles, which is a medical term for little holes in the muscle. And we see something called red-rimmed vacuoles, particularly this is a neuropathologist would help us figure that out, or a neuromuscular specialist would tell us that they see red-rimmed vacuoles under the microscope. So it's a particular uh, tissue diagnosis or histologic uh, hallmark that we look for. Having said that, that is the uh, holy grail, if you will. That's what we look for. But I would say the literature would probably support this, that we see that in almost certainly maybe a third of the time. And we don't know why we miss it. So what we generally end up seeing is inflammation with lymphocytes, which are a type of white blood cell that we see in other types of inflammatory muscle disease that we call myositis. And so the patient 
not infrequently gets diagnosed or misdiagnosed with the label of polymyositis, which really means many muscles inflamed and is a is a diagnosis that is separate from inclusion body myositis. So we see largely inflammation or inflammatory cells in the absence of those vacuoles or holes that we look for as the really confirmatory finding that we are looking for. That may be that they're not there yet, or it may be that it's a sampling error because it's a patchy disease, and it's possible you just sampled a muscle, for example, next to the one that was affected with those vacuoles. So it's possible it's sampling error, or it's possible that we don't understand the disease well enough to realize that it's a progressive disease, and in the beginning there's inflammation without vacuoles. Okay. Now, the the usage of the term inclusion bodies, that's referring to the, a range of different, a variety of different proteins. And one of them is amyloid. Is that correct? That is correct. Beta amyloid, which you would probably recognize from the Alzheimer's literature. Exactly. Um, so I was wondering yeah. about that. <laughs> yes. So I will give you the rheumatologist take on this. There's probably maybe more uh, basic science literature to this than... Uh, so my, my understanding of it is that uh, years ago, uh, this was a finding that was, that was found, and um, people got very sort of excited because once there were thoughts about how to uh, uh, treat Alzheimer's, of course, people sort of said, well, this is like Alzheimer's of the muscle, and we could use similar therapies that we use for Alzheimer's to, to slow the disease down. And they didn't work generally across the board, as you may know. We'll get to that subject, but mm-hmm. it's a dismally treated disease, unfortunately, with everything that we have tried, virtually everything. And, uh, and then if you really look carefully at the literature, the idea of beta amyloid in the muscle, while it's probably there, is really debated as to whether it is really there uh, enough to have any bearing on the disease process itself. So I would say in the last five years or so, the idea that beta amyloid plays a large role in inclusion body myositis has been debated, at least in certain circles, pretty heavily. Okay. I I think that summarizes it well. Now, there's also, when we talk about theories, the the virus theory that a virus triggers T cells. Is that, um, do you give that any credit? I just don't think we know enough about virology at all. I think it's a, uh, it's certainly a provocative hypothesis. Uh, I often think that we don't understand viruses enough and probably they play more of a role in immunologic diseases than we know, Mm -hmm. but I really could not speak with any credibility or have any scientific validity to date that that I think that that's definitive or no more so than any hypothesis in other myositis syndromes that I don't think we've really had enough data to, 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 you know, to substantiate that hypothesis. It's, it's certainly provocative. I think it may make sense on a scientific level, but I just don't think the data is there to support it yet. Okay, that's fair. Now, what about genetic factors and environmental factors? Is there anything you're aware of there? There is a genetic type of uh, inclusion body myositis, but that's separate than really what we're speaking about today. The, okay. the inclusion body myositis that we generally speak about in the public is sporadic um, inclusion body myositis. You might even see the abbreviation of SIBM, sporadic IBM, or sporadic inclusion body myositis. The genetic version has a specific gene mutation called the, it's in capitals, the G-E-N-E, the gene uh, mutation, and I think that's probably... a much more esoteric discussion, but there is a genetic version of this. 
any genetic factors that uh, they, there do, does not just seem to be a yeah. genetic predisposition in sporadic IBM for the most part. Okay. Um, there is, I guess there's always an exception to every rule, but one of the first questions people will ask is, will my children get this? Or if the child is in the room, you know, obviously uh, this is a discussion that's important. Mm-hmm. I, or, you know, uh, and or siblings, etc. And there are occasional reports of siblings with this, uh, and rare reports of child and and uh, parent. But I think that is extraordinarily rare, certainly in my experience. So genetics in the particular IBM we're talking about is is probably mostly off the table. Uh, environmental, again, super curious question. I think we have tried to investigate these things. Colleagues of mine at the National Institutes of Health and other places are very interested in environmental uh, factors for everything from the dust in your house to where you grew up. And I don't think, again, we are quite there in in having a particular agent that we can point to. Yeah. Do they they try to do epidemiology on your patients ever? You know, a big, massive questionnaire of some sort? Yeah, we do. Uh, So, yeah, so the short answer is yes. There's patient organizations that that capture this information, like the Myositis Association has a large database of patients. We have a large database of patients, um, and several centers throughout the world do as well. So, And and people do uh, share that information. Because the disease is rare, it requires really to collate that, that data. But then that becomes a bit difficult, as you can imagine, because the environmental factors here might not be the environmental factors in Paris, for example. Yeah. And so trying to compare, are you really comparing apples to apples, becomes very difficult. So mm-hmm. certainly there is curiosity and uh, importance placed on epidemiology, but I think realistically it's difficult. And also patient recall and data gathering uh, in, that, in that sense is so much more difficult than measuring someone's T-cells, for example. Yeah, I understand. Okay, well, moving on to treatment and management, uh, it seems like your your first uh, line of defense against this illness is exercise and, and physical therapy. Is that right? It, it really is. I, you know, I think that some of the uh, medical literature initially suggested that something like Steroids like prednisone, a corticosteroid, not an anabolic steroid, but a corticosteroid like prednisone um, might be helpful. And I wouldn't lie to you to say that many of us try it in the beginning to say maybe we'll uh, see a response. I think that's very curious because some patients may respond to prednisone. Most of the time, I think the answer is that they don't. Uh, and thus, the therapy becomes more toxic than helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patients have asked about a variety of therapies that we use in other autoimmune muscle diseases. And for lack of wanting to offer very little as a physician, I think we've all been in the position to try things. Uh, and I, I think that's also a, in a, in a further area for study is to wish patients may be responders to these therapies early on. I'll also, not to cloud the waters more, but I, I, I think many of us who treat and study this disease believe that like anything else, it's very heterogeneous. It's not by any means, you know, um, one size fits all. There are some of our patients that seem to present with uh, IBM and have never responded to any medication. They uh, have a progressive, really a progressive decline, although maybe at a very slow rate, but over the years. 
and then some that look a little bit more like what would have been typically called polymyositis, a little bit more upper extremity involvement, maybe some hip flexor involvement that's more prominent, usually in inclusion body myositis. I told you it's the knee knee extensors, the quadriceps are affected in, uh, in some cases in IBM different muscle groups that mimic other diseases are affected. So I think maybe some people present with, you know, come to the doctor and have their diagnosis of IBM from the beginning, and some may morph into it. And so I think we really do need to be careful about studying these groups carefully to understand who may benefit from early therapy and who almost certainly does not. Okay. That sounds very fair. Um, very complicated. <laughs> complicated, yes, but nuanced. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Now, what I'm wondering is how did you, what, what drew you to this illness to, you know, make this the focus of your practice? Yeah, I think that why we go into medicine is to help the patient. And for me, it was uh, a patient when I was just finishing my training that really pulled me in. Um, I saw her. She had a sister to this disease. Uh, it was not inclusion body myositis, but another type of inflammatory myositis. And her symptoms were very nebulous. It took a long time to diagnose her. She was younger and had just had her first child. And when we finally understood the diagnosis, I felt vindicated to help her. It felt very, very... Uh, it was rewarding to be able to help her, but then it was also puzzling of how little we knew. And I started studying this disease back in 2003. And from then, I can say that the last 16 years has really brought an explosion of understanding. I came into the field when there were relatively few people really doing work in this regard. And I'm pleased to say that I think more people have become enthusiastic about it. I think industry and pharma has become a little bit more enthusiastic about trying to find therapies for it. And so, um, but for me, the answer was the patient, the mysteriousness of the illness, and the fact that in academic medicine, we spend our lives trying to put puzzles together. And there were so many puzzles with just the pieces didn't make sense initially. And that, that drew me in. I like a challenge. Mm -hmm. I love my patients. And myositis provided a perfect juxtaposition of those two things. Wow. Okay. Well, it sounds like they're very, very lucky to have you. Um, Thank you. But because it's rare, this disease is rare, um, I'm just wondering how challenging it is to get funding. Incredibly so. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where uh, grassroots funding comes about, uh, patients who bring awareness. Uh, obviously, uh, celebrity awareness is something that is rare but incredibly helpful when mm -hmm. someone is willing to disclose uh, th that illness to help raise awareness of it and raise money. The biggest problem with most funding efforts for rare diseases is that pilot data or preliminary studies are needed, yet seldom funded. Mm -hmm. So where fundraising and raising awareness comes in is to be able to allow us to get that preliminary data to then be able to present it to larger funding bodies like the National Institutes of Health or other organizations like the Muscular Dystrophy Association, which while this is not a muscular dystrophy, that is a funding organization that looks at myositis. Those kind of organizations might get more excited, and then certainly pharma, when 
you have preliminary data that's provocative and exciting. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's the challenge for sure in any rare disease. Yeah. Now, are there many clinical trials that are being run? There are clinical trials. There, unfortunately, to date, many of the clinical trials, uh, all of the clinical trials, in some regard, have failed. Even though there has been initial interest, there are. Uh, clinical trials that are ongoing, there is, I believe, a phase two uh, trial of something called aramoclamol that literally took me almost a year, I think, to pronounce. Mm. Um, Aram- aramoclamol is uh, sort of the lay, the lay press would call it a protein-folding drug. Uh, and so there, you talked earlier about these abnormal clumps of proteins in, in, the, in the myocytes of the muscle. Fact is that people think, well, maybe they cause the, the damage or contribute to the damage. So, aramoclamol helps the helps to help the maintain proper folding of proteins. Uh, so that's one that is uh, being conducted now. Uh, and there is a another small trial that is at our Hopkins that really was the brainchild of uh, one of our former fellows who is now on faculty. Interestingly enough, uh, in uh, in a different disease set, in which uh, she had used pioglitazone uh, or pioglitazone. Pioglitazone is is an on-label drug for diabetes, and the uh, thought was, well, maybe it has different properties, um, and the the property of pioglitazone that might be helpful in inclusion body myositis is to increase the production of things like something called PGC1-alpha, which is these are enzymes that help uh, mitochondria function better. That's one of the thoughts is that maybe, you know, you can remember back to biology class, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, there's a def- the thought of defective mitochondria causing or at least being a consequence of the disease. If we could help the mitochondria to maintain their health longer, perhaps the, that maybe off-target or other target of that uh, of that drug could be helpful. So that is a small preliminary study at our institution that's currently just closing out. And we are, while we're fully enrolled, we're very um, hopeful and that we'll see some signal that will help us understand that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, well, good, good luck with that. Is there anything else you'd like to add to bring any more clarity to this illness? I guess the only thing that I would probably end with for your listeners is that it is not uncommon for uh, a person that hears an interview like this or sees something on TV or uh, hears about the symptoms of a disease and thinks, gee, that sounds like what I might have. Mm-hmm. And without the uh, breeding fear in everyone, it's a rare disease. So most of the time, fortunately, the person doesn't have it, but I'm shocked by the number of people who have come to me to say, I heard about these symptoms and I thought I should investigate it because I thought I had that. So I would just say that if you feel like you've heard something, like you have frequent falls, you have weakness uh, in your uh, extensors, your quadricep muscles, your finger flexors don't seem like they're working as well. It's difficult to make a fist and it's not because of pain, because of weakness. I would say just to ask your doctor about this. And so if nothing else, maybe some person listening may say, aha, I just recognized that that's me. Yes. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Christopher Stein, for your time and for all this information you've been able to share with us. Thank you very much for raising more awareness. It's terrific. 
Contributors to the drama of diagnosis include Emika Robbins, research assistant, Amari Jones, sound engineer, Beth Cabernet, production assistant, and Roy Minoff, original music composer and performer. <laughs>